If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a six-week series we're entitling Major World Religions. And the purpose, the intent behind this is to educate us on the great falsehoods that are prevalent around the world so that we as Christian believers can bring the hope of Christ to people where they are. So what we've decided to do is address the most significant, the most populous major world religions. And if you've been here, you'll know that we began our study with Judaism. Then we studied last week Islam. Those, including Christianity, are regarded as the three great Abrahamic religions. They all share a commonality with the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Now, here's the good thing. Since we are Christians, we have a lot of odd commonalities with Judaism and Islam, so you could draw just a bunch of mental connections, I trust. Not so tonight. <laughs> tonight we are turning a page. Our study, our subject tonight will be Hinduism. How many of you folks, by a show of hands, if you were watching TV tonight and on Jeopardy, one of the subjects was Hinduism, how many of you would be in a heap and hurt of trouble? You and me both. Here's the best part. After tonight, you and I are probably still going to be in a heap and hurt of trouble <laughs> because Hinduism is just really complex. It's convoluted. It's hard to understand. I'm going to do my best to try to rightly divide it so that you can at least discern, generally speaking, what's going on in the average Hindu mind. So why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help us, and then we'll get after it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and that you would speak through me. This is an, un this is an unordinary opportunity for me. I'm typically preaching your word, and so for the next hour or so, I'll be speaking on what amounts to a bunch of falsehood, and so I just want to be faithful. I want to help my brothers and sisters in Christ to know truth from error and to bring the hope of the gospel to the millions upon millions of Hindu believers who need it so desperately. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Hindu? Maybe you just naturally go to places. You think of those distinct Hindu cultural locations around the world like India, Sri Lanka, or, or maybe you think of temples, these Hindu temples. How many of you ever watched the famed, I think it was like a 1979 movie, Apocalypse Now, and you see him taking, uh, doing all that stuff in that Hindu temple in those dark colors. Maybe your mind goes there. Or maybe as Hinduism has become more popular in the pop culture, maybe when you think Hinduism, you can't help but have your mind be drawn to particular personalities like Deepak Chopra. You see him on, you know, talk shows or maybe even Oprah, something like that. Or maybe you go to probably the most famous individual, Gandhi. Y'all know, of course, the name Gandhi. Maybe you've heard of the god named Krishna, probably the most famous named god in the Hindu pantheon. Maybe your mind goes there. Or even an actress like Julia Roberts, who self-attests to be, at least last time I checked, a Hindu. Maybe your mind goes to that little red dot. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Those little red dot in between the eyes called a bindi. Maybe that's where your mind goes to. I'll come back in a moment to what that red dot is. You, you just associate it with that. Or perhaps, as you consider Hinduism, I bet what is most commonly uh, thought of in this room, 
is yoga. <laughs> Everybody knows yoga. It's a practice that has deeply Hindu roots. You, you think of yoga or maybe transcendental meditation. That kind of became popular within the last 20, 30 years or so. Or maybe you've even seen on your calendar. How many of you guys have an Apple product, an iPhone or a computer? If you have one of those, you may have noticed on your phone that there are all these holidays that you didn't put in your phone and yet they're there. And one of those holidays that always shows up on my phone later in the year is something called Diwali. D-I-W-A-L-I. You ever seen that on your phone? Or maybe you watch that famous sitcom, The Office, and there's a whole episode about Diwali. What is that? That is a deeply Hindu uh, holiday. We're going to talk about all of that tonight. Now, here's the intent behind our study. What I want to do is equip us to not caricature Hinduism. You don't want to just make assumptions based off your limited experience with a given Hindu. We want to be as faithful as we can to what they actually believe and practice so that when we bring the gospel, Lord willing, to them, we can apply it specifically to the situation in which they live. So that's my intent, is to help us get as educated as we can on the subject so that we can address it. Now, there's a few factors that make this study worthwhile. On the one hand, the size of Hinduism demands our attention. It is, by all accounts, the third most populous religion in the world, Christianity being the first. Christianity represents some, uh, what is it? I got it in my notes somewhere. Christianity is 31.5% uh, of the global population. That is 2.1 billion people on planet Earth today attest to be Christians. That's the most populous. Islam comes in at the second at 23.2%. That's some 1.3 billion people self-describe themselves as Muslims. The third most populous religion, Hinduism, accounts for some 900 plus million followers. That's roughly 15% of people made in the image of God being led astray into what is known as Hinduism. Its size demands our attention. Its scope demands our attention because in a very real sense, I don't want to overstate this, but Hinduism and Indian culture, in other words, the nation of India, Indian culture and Hinduism are almost one and the same. Hinduism almost is Indian culture. So it just dominates the region. Its scope is vast. There's all these practices that have come to us from that culture that you may not even be altogether aware of. Practices like yoga, meditation, a lot of veganism. By the way, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, I'm not saying you're influenced by Hinduism, but Hinduism has been a major purveyor of these practices. It has even deeply influenced Buddhism, which is the religion we're going to talk about next week. In other words, Hinduism is not just some oddity on the other side of the world. It has genuinely covered the world in its influence, its size, its scope. And lastly, one thing that really demands our attention is the truth is Hinduism, as I've mentioned, is ambiguous. It, it's admittedly tough to wrap your mind around because, in essence, there are no strict beliefs. 
There are some general guidelines that are like the banks of the river, but the river is just a flowing, and it doesn't really matter. And it often overspills the banks. There's flooding happening here, there, but who cares? What's true for you is true for you. There is a great pantheon of God. So it's, it's kind of like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's really, really, really hard to do, but I'm going to give it my best shot tonight. And I'm going to do so the same way I have our previous study in Islam. I want to go through Hinduism by addressing five key critical questions that I think are, are worth answering. On the one hand, we need to address where does Hinduism come from? What's the history behind it? And then we'll ask the question, what's the authority behind Hinduism? Do they have any books? You know, we got a Bible. Islam has the Quran. Is there a holy book in Hinduism? We'll address that. Then we're going to ask, what on earth do they believe? Is there any sort of theology or doctrine? We'll look at a little bit of that. Then we'll ask, well, how, what do they practice? Like, you know, we go to church, we take the Lord's Supper, we sing, we sit, we listen, we rinse and repeat. What do they do? We're going to talk a little bit about their practices tonight, and then we'll land the plane with what is, in my judgment, the most critical of the five questions. What's the difference between Hinduism and Christianity? Now, that should be painfully apparent. <laughs> Before I get to the fifth question, I'll just put a finer point on it so that we can all the more clearly and faithfully bring the gospel to Hindus. So let's begin where I said we would begin, the history, which I got to just say from the outset, unlike Christianity, unlike Islam, unlike Judaism, Hinduism's story is less interesting. There is a vivid story behind Christianity and Judaism and Islam. There are key personalities. There is a narrative arc. You read the Old Testament, it is a story. The story that underlies Hinduism is vague, disputed, and not personality-driven. It would be the most boring movie ever. But I'm going to try to just paint in the broadest brushstrokes I know how its backstory. Do you recall what I said just a moment ago? What is the region on earth most associated with Hinduism? India. So it is right to conclude that its story begins there. No surprise. To this day, by the way, 90% of Hindus worldwide live in this region of India. It's astonishing. So its roots are deeply India. In fact, its roots are actually a portion of India. If you're familiar with a world map, you know where India is in the Asian continent. India's northwest border is a country you surely know because it's on the news all the time, Pakistan. The border between Pakistan and India has a river called the Indus River that largely divides the two. You'll see it on this map over here. On that river, there is a valley that has been formed over the ages called the Indus Valley. And a few thousand years ago, in fact, 2,000 plus years before Christ walked the earth in his incarnate uh, Godhead, I want you to know that there was a group of people that inhabited this river valley, the Indus River Valley, some 2,000 years before Christ. And these people looked a lot and acted a lot like the ancient Canaanites. Do y'all remember the Canaanites of the Old Testament? There were all kinds of names, the, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Philistines, all the Izites and Ites, all those folks that were from Canaan. They looked a lot like the people of this valley, which here's an interesting factoid. I cannot say this to be true, but there is some speculation. When you read the book of Genesis, chapter 10, it tells us of Noah, 
and his family. They've come off the ark. They are the only people on earth. And God tells them to spread out over all the world. Well, in Genesis 10, and I think it's verse 30, one of Noah's three sons had a son who had a son who had a son named Joktan. And that man, Joktan, the Bible says in Genesis 10, and I believe verse 30, Joktan and his sons migrated to the east. It's the only one that says this. And there has been great speculation for centuries that Joktan was the originator of the masses of peoples that would eventually inhabit the southern Asian continent. I have no way to prove that. I've never seen anybody attempt to. But it would be interesting because the peoples of this valley reflected their forebears, their grandfather and great-grandfather from Canaan. Because do you remember what was wrong with the people of Canaan? Why did God send Joshua after Moses to drive out all the people of Canaan? Why did he demand that they would be eliminated from the face of the earth? For the people of Canaan were remarkably idolatrous, deeply evil people. The land of Canaan was filled with what is known as fertility religions. Now, let me describe this in a less graphic way and a more graphic way. Less graphically, the fertility religions were basically all these idolatrous practices to attempt to get the gods to bring rain for the crops. They, want, they needed crops to survive. You couldn't go to the grocery store. And if it wasn't raining, they would try to get the gods to bring the rain. And over time, they realized that the way to make crops, so to speak, grow in humanity, how to reproduce in humanity, is, of course, sexual activity. And so they actually transposed that normal practice amongst human beings into their worship. And they thought if they did deviant sexual practices, it would invoke the gods to bring down rain. And so the fertility religions of the Old Testament were filled with grotesque sexual practices that was their worship. And if you think this is like way out of left field... If you read your Old Testament, it actually talks about this. The Asherah poles, a lot of disgusting stuff happened at the Asherah poles. The temple worship, the Bible even explicitly speaks of these cult prostitutes at these practices. All of this in Canaan was mirrored in this Indus Valley. These peoples were practicing all of this polytheistic religion. They were worshiping multiple gods. But then something happened. Around the time of King David or so, a people from the north came and conquered and assimilated with the peoples of this valley. And what was originally just a polytheistic religion, you just believe in multiple gods, became what you might call a pantheistic religion or everything is God. Remember, we're monotheists, one God. Polytheists, multiple gods. Pantheists, anything and everything's a God. A rock is a God. A tree is a God. A roly-poly is a God. The sun is a God. The moons are a God. It began to become this polytheistic, pantheistic religion where anything went. And they started to write it down. The peoples that came from the north, they were called the Aryan peoples. These people came from modern-day nation of Georgia, not the state. If you're familiar with Georgia, kind of borders the, uh, the Russia and that part of, uh, of uh, 
Western Asia, Eastern Europe. That region, Azerbaijan, that nation as well, these peoples came down, grouped up with all these Indians that lived in this valley, and started to write down all the crazy things they believed about these gods. They began to write it down in some books that have abided to this day. These books, we'll come back to this in a moment, are called the Vedas, V-E-D-A-S. That is a famed book in Hinduism to this day. They begin to write down what they believe about all these crazy, idolatrous gods. This is basically like the old Canaanite religion in more modern context. They started to write it down. They began to believe that there was one great spirit that underlied everything. It was kind of like Star Wars, the Force. You ever remember hearing Obi-Wan Kenobi talk to his young Padawan and tell him about the power of the Force and just be one with it and, you know, close your eyes and swing the lightsaber and if you can feel the Force going through you, then you'll be able to do it? This is essentially what was going on in Hinduism. They believed that there was this God force that just went throughout everything. They had a name for this God force. It was called the Brahman. Brahman was the name they used to describe just this spiritual godness that pervaded everything. And eventually there was a more specific name you could use to describe Hinduism. It became known as Brahmanism. Now, some of you are wondering, Pastor, where did the name Hinduism come from? This isn't going to be a surprise to you. In the original language of that region, the language was called Sanskrit, they had a word for the Indus River Valley. Do you want to know what that word is for that Indus River Valley? Hindu. A Hindu is one from that region of the world. And it developed over centuries to refer to the religious identification of those who were from that region of the world. A Hindu is one from the Indus River Valley, and it eventually became one who practiced the polytheistic, pantheistic, Brahmanistic religion of that time. So now let's take a step back, since that history is a kind of vague, and let's try to make sense together what is going on with this religion written down in these books called the Vedas? What do we make of this religion? Well, let's start with its authority. I already kind of gave it away. Let's talk about its books. What sort of books could you even look to to try to get a grip on Hinduism? Well, the first, as I've already mentioned, perhaps the most significant is what are called the, the Vedas. The Vedas were these books that were orally passed down from about 1500 to 1200 B.C., and it's just basically a collection of Sanskrit wisdom literature. Terribly boring. There is another book that came after it. These books are called the Upanishads. Upanishads. They were basically a philosophical commentary on the Vedas. It was almost like a sequel. Now, you know what's often the case with sequels, right? They're usually not as good as the original. Pretty much the case here. The Upanishads just tried to be a sequel to the Vedas, given some commentary on them, but those are widely regarded as the two major books. There's one book in particular. It's an epic poem. I asked this at Mallard Creek Campus when I taught this a month or so ago, and I don't think anybody's hand came up. Let's see if this room is more cultured and more uh, literarily inclined. 
Has anybody in here ever heard, you, Don, you raised your hand and you don't even know what I'm about to say. You better know the answer to this, Don. Has anybody ever heard of the Bhagavad Gita? Bhagavad Gita? Don, well done, brother. You were ahead of your game. You've heard of it too, Brandon? It is in common culture. You'll hear it taught in colleges, by the way, to this very day. It is probably the most famous of the Hindu literature. It's this big old poem. I find it horribly boring, but, you know, it's, it's out there. And it's considered the beautiful song of God. Those are the major books. I don't encourage you to go read them. I don't encourage you to go check them out from the library. Just know that they exist. I'm going to try to give you the cliff notes. Doesn't everybody like the cliff notes so you don't actually have to read the thing? God bless whoever writes cliff notes online. I'm going to give you the cliff notes on all these Hindu writings. Let's begin with what do they believe? I'm going to give you a vocab list. So this is going to help you go impress your friends. This will help you win the Hindu category on Jeopardy. I, you're not going to know any of this. I didn't know any of this before I studied it. So let's just fill our brains with a bunch of fun vocab that we'll know from this point forward. Some key things you want to know that Hinduism believes. Well, let's begin with this word, Brahmin. I already taught, mentioned that. Let's repeat it. Brahmin is their view that there is an impersonal, formless, attributeless divinity that is the source of all reality. Now stop. Any of you by a show of hands have any fat clue what I just said? Like, how do you even think about that? I mean, we can imagine the person and work of Christ. It's concrete. How are you supposed to have any relationship to an attributeless, formless, impersonal divinity that is the source of all ultimate reality? That is the great subject that underlies Hinduism. There's just this force, this God force over everything. But strangely, despite that, they actually have a lot of gods. There are three in particular that are most important. Did you know they have their own trinity? But they call this trinity the Trimurti. And this Trimurti or trinity involves three names you might want to know. The first one is Brahma. Now notice there's not an N at the end. Brahma, not Brahman. The Brahma is their creator god, and he ends up marrying a goddess named Saraswati. There is a second god. Has anybody ever heard of the god Vishnu? You often hear that in pop culture today. Vishnu is the preserver god, whatever that means. And Vishnu is married to Lakshmi. Then there is a third and final god of this trinity or trimurti, Shiva, the destroyer god, who's married to Parvati. Those are the three great gods of Hinduism, but they're not alone. There are a great many, and there's one particular subset of these gods that I bet most of you are going to be familiar with. How many of you guys saw that blockbuster movie in, I think it was 2009, Avatar? Did you know Avatar comes from Hinduism? For in Hinduism, a great core belief is something that they call avatars. These are mythical, material incarnations of their God. So let me say that even simpler. An avatar is a physical representation of one of their gods. By the way, do you know how many gods there are in Hinduism? Nobody really knows, but it's estimated to be above 300 million. Lots of gods. Do you want to know who's included among that great pantheon of gods? Jesus Christ our Lord. 
One of the 300 million. Anything goes. Y'all got a God? Add to it. 301 million. There's going to be all kinds of gods out there. They believe these gods often uh, materialize, present themselves as avatars. Interestingly enough, one of the most famous of the avatars is named Buddha. Interesting. Y'all familiar with the name Buddha? Buddha is considered the ninth avatar of Vishnu. Strange. We're going to make that connection next week when we teach on Buddhism. So now we know the words Brahma. We know the words Trimurti and those crazy gods. We know the word avatar. We are going to be really crushing this Jeopardy category. Let's keep moving. An additional word that you want to know is Atman. Now, Atman, you can just write out in parenthesis. Here's what Atman means. Atman is what they call the soul or our personhood. It's an immortal, uncreated soul that migrates in different bodies. So for example, do you realize Christians believe in the soul and they believe that our soul will live forever. So there will come a day when you will pass away and your earthly body will decay but your soul will live forever between either the presence of God in eternal bliss called heaven or, in the present, or away from the presence of God in the internal destruction called hell. But your soul will persist forever. Hinduism shares this belief that there is a soul, but unlike Christianity, they believe this soul, this Atman, will exist forever, but when you die, they don't believe that soul is going to heaven or hell. They believe that soul or that Atman is going to experience the next word in our list. It's going to experience samsara. I have a word that you guys know. Nobody's probably ever heard of samsara. How many of you have heard of reincarnation? That's a famous phrase. They believe that the, the soul, the Atman, when it dies, will be reincarnated into something else. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, in my next life, I hope to be something better? Or if I don't do this in my next life, I, you know, I might be a fox, I might be a toad. But if I do really good in my next life, I might be you know, a rich guy that lives in L.A. That's this view of reincarnation. Uh, over time, you're going to keep changing into something new and better. Time is cyclical. Now, how do you know whether or not you're going to reincarnate into something better or worse? I bet all of you know this word. How many of you have heard the word karma? That is probably the most commonly used Hindu word today. Karma is the belief, I, I trust actually most of you are probably familiar with this. Karma is the belief in what you might call the law of cause and effect. Every action you do in this life is going to have a reaction or a consequence in the next life. So if you do something good, something good's coming. Oftentimes people think of karma like, well, if I give that panhandler 10 bucks, somebody's going to help me down the road when I need help. That's karma. In Hinduism, it goes one further. If I give that panhandler $10, I might be reincarnated into something better. So you try to live a good life so that if you have enough good things, karma will dictate that when you die, you will become something greater and something greater and something greater. But karma also dictates that if you're kind of a you know, scallywag, you don't do good stuff, guess what's going to happen? In your next life, you're going to reincarnate into something lower and worse. Pretty terrible way to live, right? Now, 
Is it just, what happens, like, what would you imagine to be the greatest incarnation? The, it might be your hero. Like, who do you want to be? And that would be the highest point. Is that it? Like, is that, that's salvation? That's what you want? You ever heard of uh, when, I've heard this, when NFL players win the Super Bowl for the first time, often many of them down spiral into depression because they've spent literally their entire life building up to that moment. And once they achieve it, like so many good things in this world, it's actually not that great. Like it's cool for a moment. And then you're like, wait, is that it? I've lived my entire life for, for that piece of jewelry? They down spiral into depression. So too, can you imagine like if my whole religion is like trying to become Michael Jordan or whatever your greatest reincarnated thought could be, is that it? They actually do have an end goal. They believe that if you do enough good things, karma will reincarnate you enough until one day, maybe 10 million years from now, you might at last experience what we would call salvation. They call moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A, Moksha. Moksha is the salvation from reincarnation. It's when at last you are freed. Now, what does that actually mean? This is where it feels like Star Wars again. It's as if you finally break free from the cycle of being reincarnated and you become one with the Force. The illustration that's often used is this. If all divinity is an ocean, you are this drop of water that is finally dropped in the ocean and you can't be found anymore. You have become one with the ocean. When you finally get saved out of reincarnation, you are now one with the Brahmin. You are the God force. And that is regarded as salvation, interestingly enough. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to moksha. How can you make sure that there's enough good karma in your life to get reincarnated into something better? Well, there's three general ways to be a good person in Hinduism. They have technical names, but honestly, their explanation is pretty simple. The technical names are Dharma, Nyanya, <laughs> it's a really weird way to say, but that's how you pronounce it, Nyanya, and Bhakti. Let's talk about those three ways. One way Dharma is basically what you and I know all too well by nature. It's salvation by good works. You can get reincarnated into something better if you just do a lot of good things. So, for example, you obey all the laws of your family. You're good to mom and dad. You don't eat the wrong foods. You eat the right foods. You obey. You're just a good kid. That is going to help you uh, earn moksha one day. But then there's another way you can earn it. Nyanya. This is salvation not by good works. It's salvation by knowledge or meditation. It would involve a practice we call yoga. Well, I'm going to come back to yoga in a moment, but it's, it's clearing your mind, figuring out how to get your mind one with God, renouncing yourself and just trying to learn the art of self-control. They regard that as somehow, some way, earning your way to God. And then thirdly and finally, bhakti is salvation by devotion, or for lack of a better word, worshiping one of the 300 million gods. It's the most popular way Hindus practice their faith. Because, you know, salvation by works, well, that's a lot of work. And salvation by yoga, y'all ever tried yoga? Man, it's hard. 
best way is I can just go kind of like worship one of the 300 million gods, bow up my mat and do my little ditty and then be done with it all. That's the most common way Hinduism is practiced. And then finally, what makes heaven heaven? What makes moksha so good? How many of you really want to become a drop of water in this ocean of divinity? I'll tell you what makes it feel like heaven to them, desirable. It's because in that moment, they believe you are experiencing what's called nirvana. Y'all heard the name nirvana? Probably associate it with a band. But nirvana is this profound peace of mind that evidently comes when you are saved, when you finally escape the cycle of reincarnated existence and become one with divinity. Now, how many of you have your head spinning right now thinking, mercy, this is one odd worldview? Well, let me spin you around just a couple more times so we'll be nice and dizzy before we leave here tonight. You ready for that? Let's talk about now how they practice all this. What are the distinctives? We've talked about what they believe. Now, how does this functionally work? What would you expect to see in Hinduism? Well, let's begin with a few key distinctives, a few words you need to know. No. On the one hand, Hindus believe that there are four major objectives in life. These would be like four life goals that you really got to pay attention to. They use a phrase, a, a word, purushartha. I know that means nothing to you, but if you knew the original language, purusha means human, artha means purpose, so it's the human purpose. Purushartha is the great human purpose, and there are four great human purposes. The first one is morality, or what they call dharma. You got to be good. You got to do your duty. You need to be one who does their duty. Now, how many of you guys have ever watched the TV show um, Downton Abbey? Y'all familiar with Downton Abbey? Downton Abbey, if you've watched it, you'll now know that that show really highlights a, a way of living that most of us aren't familiar with. Have you ever found the sense of profound duty like so otherworldly? The downstairs people. You all remember the downstairs people who stay downstairs and shouldn't dare come up and speak to Lady Grantham and Lord Grantham. They're going to stay downstairs because this is their lot in life and they feel like that's what they're supposed to do. It's so foreign to us because the American ethos is you can be whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and how dare anybody tell you otherwise. It's the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality. Our culture is unusual. Most cultures throughout history had a very distinct view of duty. And in Hinduism, there is similar to the downstairs people of Downton Abbey, there is this profound sense that you must be what you were born as. Not born to be. In America, you're like, you're born to be whatever you want. You can be a doctor, you can be a football player. There, it's if you were born in the lowest class, that is your duty. You must stay there. It is sinful. It is wrong for you to try to be more than you are. It is a profound sense of duty. So one of the first great objectives of life in Hinduism is dharma. You be dutiful to what your lot in life is. Don't try to go beyond it. If you do, you're going to have bad karma come on you. Another major purpose of life is not just morality. You need to pursue prosperity. They call this artha. You need to want to provide a good means of living for your family. You need to work hard, be a good provider. That sounds pretty good, right? The third one is pleasure, or they use the phrase kama. Pleasure is this aesthetic enjoyment 
of life. It is this desire to enjoy with all of your senses all that life has to offer, which is why Hinduism and grotesque, perverse sexual practices are very uh, commonly united. There's a lot of perversity out there connected to Hinduism because of one of these great purposes of life is to glut yourself on any sensual pleasure possible. It is considered one of the great purposes of life. By the way, that is not to suggest that any Hindu you know does that. That is only to say that in many pockets of it, it is rampant, okay? Fourthly and finally, the last great purpose of life is to be liberated. We already use this word, moksha. It's to break free from all the suffering of life. Now, a few other distinctives you might notice if you meet any Hindus. Let's go to that one we're all familiar with, yoga. Now, when you think yoga, what do you think of? You think like yoga mats, sweat, downward dog, warrior one pose, hard, um, weird, like you think that? You know what's interesting? That's not yoga. That is just a small sliver of yoga. Did you know yoga, for lack of a better word, here's the closest parallel I can think of. Yoga in Hinduism is what spiritual disciplines is for Christianity. A spiritual discipline is reading your Bible, praying, uh, gathering with God's people, giving, etc. In Hinduism, the spiritual disciplines you would practice are what's called yoga. There's a few varieties, one of which you'll recognize, the others you probably had never heard of. One of the spiritual disciplines of yoga is called karma yoga. It is, in other words, living a life of devotion. It's doing good without expecting anything in return. So one spiritual discipline you can practice in Hinduism is just do a bunch of good for a whole lot of people and don't expect anything to come back. Now, is that wrong? I mean, that actually sounds like Jesus. It's interesting how Jesus' morality, his ethics, somehow interweave in so many of these world religions. It's as if his law is inscribed upon all hearts. It's as if every person that breathes air is somehow, some way aware of the one creator God who knows the truth but suppresses it. Isn't it interesting how the ethics of Christianity just cannot be escaped. It's the path of devotion. There's another type of yoga. It's called bhakti yoga, and that's the path of love. This is you need to be humble, surrender, pray. Maybe you should chant or do these mantras where you repeat things over and over and over again. By the way, uh, mantras or these repetitive phrases are very commonly practiced in Hinduism. And there is actually some folks that will attest that there are certain bands that can move a crowd in unusual ways because they practice Hindu practices of mantras, repeating things, getting people up into a fervor. Have you ever found how easy it is to manipulate somebody emotionally with music? There's actually even been some longstanding criticism of some more common worship songs that are highly repetitive and don't actually say much, but just repeat it over and over again. And somehow, some way, singing God is love a trillion times is more spiritual than singing something deeply rich straight out of the Bible. Now, why is that? It, what it actually might mean is that it's not actually a spiritual experience you're having. It's an emotional one like you might have at a Bruce Springsteen concert. What's going on here? 
there is an unusual practice of this mantra that they've learned can move, manipulate, incite the emotions of people. The mantras. And then lastly, the one you're probably most familiar with. Uh, uh, oh no, I missed one. This, the last one is the one you're most familiar with. Second to last, Nyanya Yoga. This is the path of knowledge. If any of you guys can pronounce that word rightly to me after uh, Foundations tonight in the lobby, I'll give you a high five. Nyanya. It's the philosophical uh, mode of yoga. It's just learning from all the teachings. It's like studying. If you want to have a spiritual discipline, go read the Vedas. Go read the Upanishads. Then you'll kind of work your way towards God. The last one, the one you guys are familiar with, is what's called Raja Yoga. This is the path of meditation, which is mind control. How do you control your mind? Well, they've learned that there's a few ways to control your mind. You need to learn how to control your body, control your breathing. If you can control your breathing and get mastery over your body, you can begin to control your mind. What are the practices to help you get there? It's physical practices, downward dog, warrior one, and all the other crazy yoga poses. Yoga, as we commonly know it, are these physical practices designed to help you control your mind and in Hindu theology, earn your way to moksha. But in popular culture, I mean, some of these practices are even used in like the US military. They wouldn't call it that, but where they're helping you learn how to control your mind, control your heart rate, control your breathing. Some of it is just, you know, kind of healthy. But these practices of yoga that we uh, are familiar with have deeply Hindu roots. Yoga the spiritual discipline, so to speak, of Hinduism. Just a few more words you want to know. One word that you may have forgotten but is so key to Hinduism, we call it caste system. They call it the Varna. Are you all familiar with a caste system? This kind of goes back to the uh, illustration I used with, um, what's that TV show I said? Uh, Downton Abbey. The caste system is a system in which there are haves and have-nots, and the have-nots had better not try to have. This this view that whatever you're born into, that's your lot in life, you need to stay there. They have five main uh, castes, four in particular. The fifth is like so low, they don't even like to talk about it. So let's start at the top. The first caste is called the Brahmin, M-I-N, caste. These are the elites of society, the priests, the scholars, the teachers. It's like the religious leaders of the group. That's the greatest caste. Then the next caste is called the Kshatriyas. They are the rulers, the warriors, the administrators of India. Then there's a third caste called the Vaishyas. They are kind of merchant class or agricultural farmer class people. And then the lowest class in the general population is called the sudras, or the laborers, the service providers. But there is a fifth class <coughs> that is so low that they don't want to speak of them. They don't want to touch them. They're called the untouchables. This class of people, it actually has a technical name. It's not written on the screen. They're called the Dalits. Some people call it Dalits, D-A-L-I-T. These untouchables are the lowest of the low. There's a description on here on laundresses and tanners. Uh, it's basically the people you would never want to be around. This is a system that determines how you practice your religion in India. Varna system, the caste system, is so significant that it dictates 
who you are, how you interact, how you worship, and what you should expect from this life. You should not expect, if you were born in the Sudra uh, caste, you should not expect in this life to move up the ladder. If you do enough good, you might be reincarnated into the Vaishya or the Kshatriya or the Brahmin class eventually, but it's unlikely. The caste system is significant in the culture of Hinduism. Just a couple final words you want to know. Puja is their word for worship. It's kind of how they worship. The most typical way they would worship is they, they kind of pay homage to gods by making an offering of flowers or fruits. Oftentimes they'll use their five senses like praying, lighting a lamp, burning incense, making those offerings, sometimes even ringing a bell. They'll do those little things to try to worship their gods. They have a particular holiday that I referenced earlier tonight called Diwali. That is the festival of lights. It honors one of their goddesses named Lakshmi. And it's basically usually in mid-October or mid-November. It lasts five to six days, and they basically light all these little lamps. That's what Diwali is. Now you're going to know next time you see it. Auto update on your calendar. And then lastly, they have a word for their teachers, those who know a lot. You guys have heard this word before. Any of you all ever thrown around loosely the word guru? A guru is a Hindu teacher who knows a lot about the gods. It's literally a discipler, a dispeller, rather, of darkness. A guru drives out the darkness and brings light, so to speak, in Hinduism. Now, everybody take a deep breath with me. Let's try to clear our head for a second, because I'm sure it's spinning. Let's get our balance before I pray and get us out of here so we're not falling over walking out of here. And let's try to just draw some connections between the insanity, the craziness that is Hinduism, and Christianity. Unlike Islam and Judaism, where the connections are painfully apparent, Hinduism is just so wild. It's so like, I don't even, Pastor, I don't even know how to describe this after your lesson tonight. Let's do our best to just try to get our grip on a few facets of Hinduism and apply it to the gospel of Jesus. First off, I want you to notice that if you have the opportunity to cross paths with a Hindu and you believe God is calling you to develop an intentional relationship with them, I want to encourage you to begin by showing them a bigger God. They know the concept of a trinity. They have a trimerti. Show them that their God is so painfully less than the God of the Bible. Let's trade that impersonal formless, attributeless God for a most personal God filled with attributes of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He can do anything. Nobody can stop him. He is the definition of righteousness, goodness, and justice. Our God can be known. He's revealed himself. He has a personality. Show them a bigger God. Show them, in other words, that their Hindu God is far too small. Nothing compares to the great, big, sovereign God of the Bible. Show it to them. Show them not only a bigger God. Show them that we have a surer authority, a more firm foundation. The Bible, the word of the living God. They're going to be fascinated by scriptures. They probably won't be offended by the Bible. They'll find it interesting because in Hinduism, almost anything goes. So show them the Bible. Teach them the grand arc of the Bible. Anybody in this room could do it. God created everything. We fell. God promised to save us. 
And he did so through Jesus. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. One day he's going to come back and save us all. Show them that great story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the fact that he's coming again. Show them that there is a surer authority. Not just all these crazy wisdom poems in their Upanishads and Vedas. There is a great story to be held in this Bible. A bigger God. Show them a surer authority. Show them that they have a more realistic condition described in the Bible. That condition is what we call sin. In Hinduism, there really isn't a concept of sin. In fact, they call sin an utter illusion because they really believe everything in this world is essentially an illusion. They don't really have a concept of sin. You just are finding God within yourself. Show them that you know something's wrong, right? Like you don't have to teach somebody to sin. You, you know like this is something inherent within you, right? You know to one degree or another that what you're doing is wrong. You have an innate sense of right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, justice and injustice. You know that, right? Do you realize how much you contribute to this? Show them that their condition is actually better reflected in the Bible than it is in the Upanishads or the Vedas. Show them a more realistic condition. Show them a surer authority. Show them a bigger God. And finally, show them, my friends, a better hope. For the gospel of Hinduism is like static. It is not a sweet melody. It's confusing. It's like so many things swirling at once. Have you ever been in a room where there's just so much noise you can't hear who's talking right in front of you? You ever been at the beach and the person sitting to your left has their boombox on, the person to your right has your boombox on, and you can't hear anything? You got Shania Twain and Britney Spears blaring at the same time and you just don't know what's being sung? So too. The so-called gospel of Hinduism, it's just static. You can't understand it. Show them that there is a sweet melody of the gospel, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that there is a sure, steady hope we have. Show them that you are saved by Jesus alone. Show them that there is not enough works they could ever hope to do this side of eternity to ever get themselves to God. And I think that'll probably resonate because who amongst us is narcissistic enough to think, you know what, I genuinely think I am a sufficiently good enough person to get there. You may feel that way in your good moments. What about in your low moments? Do you really believe that? Show them that what their greatest fear is, is true. And thanks be to Jesus Christ, their greatest fear is met with unspeakable hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. My friends, the Christian gospel is not too weak. It is not too small to confront the so-called gospel of Hinduism. Together, let's pray that God makes us cross paths with Hindus that are all over the city of Charlotte and help them see that there is a sure foundation. My friends, there is a more realistic condition. And praise be to God, there is a better hope that awaits them in Jesus. Why don't you join me as we pray, and then we'll be dismissed, and we'll come back next week and study Buddhism. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray that tonight's lesson would not be too overwhelming, that it would equip them and me to be found faithful 
as we interact with Hindus. Use us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus' name. And gather us again this coming Lord's Day as we worship you. And gather us again next Wednesday night as we continue to make sense of these great falsehoods that have so many in their grip. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.